that, um, that this is a wonderful church and that I am welcome to feel at home. So every now and then, it's okay for you to say amen to me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that welcome. Thank you for uh, the privilege of being here with you today. Um, I asked for a clock. Can you just lift that clock up so I can see what time it is? All right. So how much time do we have? I'm grateful for the privilege of being here this morning. And um, I share with Pastor Rod on yesterday just uh, how much I appreciate his friendship and how much um, I appreciate just the opportunity to, to get to know him and to uh, grow in a relationship with him. I'm from Tabernacle Community Church over in the Alger Heights community, and um, it, is, it is good to be here. It's good to have friends here. Amen? Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I love the church of Jesus Christ. I love the people of God. And yet, truth be told, we have some challenges. We have some challenges that we must be willing to deal with. And these challenges, these challenges are, are not unique to us, but they're challenges that, that we as the people of God need to consider, need to think about, need to address. Particularly the people of God in the United States of America. People of God from the, the, the Western church, so to speak. In the Western church, personal piety is very important. Would you not agree? Personal piety is real important. Having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is of the utmost importance. Spending time in our Bible and praying and talking to God is very important. Drawing near to God, desiring relationship with God, coming and gatherings like this to worship God together is very, very important. Would you not agree? Growing in our understanding of who God is and seeking his face and desiring to have God draw near to us as we draw near to him. Being passionate about the truth of his word is very, very important. But sometimes personal piety comes with some challenges. First, personal piety can sometimes lead to this idea of individualism. It can lead to this idea of it's all about me and my relationship with God. That, that what happens corporately seems to get lost, especially in our individualistic society. We become more individualized in our relationship with God, and it, it becomes about Jesus and me, and we forget about Jesus and us. It becomes more about my personal growth and my personal Bible study and my devotions, as great as those are, it oftentimes, personal piety oftentimes will lead to individualism. Or at least it expresses itself in individualism. It also expresses itself in entitlement. So how so? Well, 
you begin to grow in your relationship with God, you begin to grow in your understanding of the word of God. And somewhere along the journey, you begin to think that God owes you something. You begin to believe that because you have grown in your walk with God, that in some ways, God should answer your prayers. So, so it, comes, it comes off like this. It comes off like this. When something negative happens in your life, you respond something like this. Well, God, I've been faithful to you. I've been reading my Bible. I've been doing the things that you've called me to do. Why is this happening in my life? Have you ever said that before? Oh, 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 that doesn't happen to you. You, (laughs) you, you, you've never tried to bargain with God. You've You've never, you've never tried to say to God, God, if you'll get me out of this circumstance, then I will fill in the blank. Well, this kind of, this kind of personal piety, this kind of missing the point of growing in our relationship with God and pursuing God was not only, is not only an issue for you and I, it was an issue for God's people in the Old Testament. And today, today, I want to challenge you in your thinking. I, I want to push you in your thinking. I, I, I want to help you to discover that, that personal piety is good. Doing the, the, the things that help you grow in your relationship with God is great. But God wants us to understand that our intimacy with him, our relationship with him, should demonstrate its fruit in how we interact with other people. The cross is a beautiful symbol of that. The cross is a beautiful symbol of that. There is a horizontal beam and a vertical beam. It, it symbolizes our relationship with God. When, when our relationship with God is right and in tune with him, our relationship with humanity should also be in right relationship. And so as a follower of Christ, as a follower of God, what, what we believe as our own personal piety should express itself in how we interface with other people. Isaiah chapter 58 speaks to this issue. Here, the word of the Lord reads in Isaiah 58, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion. And to the descendants of Jacob, their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right. And has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions. And seem eager for God to come near them. Sounds pretty good. I mean, these are, these are individuals. It, it, it starts out, the passage begins by declaring to the people that they are in rebellion. But when you read verse 2, day after day, they're seeking God. They seem eager to know his ways. They're a nation who want to do what's right. They have not forsaken the commands of God. They ask God for just decisions. They seem to be eager for God to come near to them. All of this sounds good. Their their personal piety and morality is on point. But here's the question. Here's the question that the people ask that I believe is the turning point in this passage. Why have we fasted, they say, 
and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please as God begins to respond to this question. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Here's what they're basically saying. They're basically saying, God, we're doing all this great stuff. Why aren't you paying attention to us? Why aren't you answering our prayers? Why aren't you giving us what we want? Why, why is it, God, that we're doing all of these great things and you're not answering our prayers? You're not listening to us. So, so here is, here's, here's a point I want to leave with you today. Because as God begins to answer this question, I think it helps us to understand what God's expectations are. God expects that our relationship with him in and through worship will impact our relationship with others. God expects that our relationship with him in and through worship will impact our relationship with others. Look at what he says. In verse verse 3, he says, Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? God is saying, God is saying that that I expect that your relationship with me will impact your relationship with other people. He says, you're fasting, you're involved in this practice of fasting, and yet you exploit your workers. You're taking advantage of those who work with you. you. You look like the part But inwardly, and when you relate to others, you don't actually act the part. You're taking advantage of people. You're quarreling with other workers. You're doing things that that, that are treating people unfairly. Your leadership style is given to quarreling and strife and backbiting and uncontrolled anger and short fuses. You're interfacing with people in in such a way that your own personal interest is what's at hand and not the people that you work for, that, that work for you. Those who are under your authority or in your care are not important. They're only there to accomplish your purposes of becoming better in your job. Or advancing the development of your business. Or the bottom line for your life. Dr. John Oswald in the book of Isaiah was right when he said that repentance is not for the purpose of getting God to do anything. It is an expression of the conviction that my ways are wrong and God's ways are right. Whether God decides to do anything for me or not as a result of my repentance, I should be willing to still recognize that God's ways are right and my ways are wrong. So God is saying, God is saying to Israel that your ways have been wrong. You're fasting. You look the part. You're bowing your head. You're lying in sackcloth and ashes. You're doing all the religious rites. You're, you're, you're following the Mosaic rites to the T. 
but it doesn't show up in how you interact with other people. So let's push it a little bit further. Verses 6 and 7 here is what the text says. He says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? So, so God says, this is the kind of fasting that I expect. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? Listen to the language. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? God says, God says, that what I'm looking for, the kind of fast that I'm looking for, is people who will do justice in the world. This entire passage is about the importance of justice. And God is saying, what I'm looking for is a people who will follow the Mosaic rites, who will understand how important personal piety is, who will understand how valuable it is for us to gather in spaces like this. I am looking for people who will grab a hold to my teaching and allow it to penetrate their lives in such a way that they're willing to loosen the chains of injustice. That, that we, the body of Christ, the, the people of God, should be more inclined to advocate and to fight for areas of injustice. We, more than anyone else, should be the ones leading the charge in abolishing injustices and systems of injustice. But many of us argue between conservative theology and liberal theology. And, and, and too many of us are afraid to, you know, as conservatives to fall over into the liberal side. But, but the Bible teaches us that we ought to be both conservative and liberal. The Bible teaches us that personal piety is important and it is, it is valuable. But watch out because if personal piety is disconnected from social concern, then we have not lived into the heart and the vision of God. That, that God, in fa- it's all right to say amen, come on with it. God, God is looking for people who will do justice who will do justice. Now, Isaiah says, here's the type of fasting that pleases God. Understand me here. God is not diminishing the value of fasting. God is not diminishing the value of fasting. God is not saying, do not practice these personal acts of worship. God is in fact saying that when you engage in these actions, allow them to flow in social concern. Well, some people call it the social gospel. But as I read Isaiah 61, and as Jesus quotes, Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4 in the initiation of his ministry. Jesus says, I come to set captives free. Jesus says, I've come to give sight to the blind. Jesus says that I've come to bring freedom where there is injustice. You want to call it a social gospel. That's the gospel of the kingdom. That's what I like to call it. The gospel, a robust view of what the gospel is. It is the gospel of the kingdom. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have to be concerned about social concerns. He says, loose the chains of injustice. 
untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. You know, it's not, it's not enough to just do good works. We have to address the systems that are in place. We have to begin to unbreak, to unbreak the yokes that oppress people. Unjust systems are what's considered yokes in this passage. And yokes are things that are used for animals. So anything in our culture that dehumanizes individuals, we have to work against. He says, share your food with the hungry. As you're fasting, as you're, you're withdrawing and not eating food, he says, be willing to share with others. Do you know the text, the text helps us to understand that, that not sharing, not sharing is more than just being stingy. Not sharing what God has given us is being unjust. Because God has blessed you not for your own consumption, not so that you could be a cul-de-sac, but God has blessed you so that you could be a channel of blessing to others. You have been given the blessing and the prosperity that you have for the sake of blessing others. So to not share is not only stinginess, it is to be unjust. Now, I don't want you to feel guilty if you're not living into this reality. But I do want you to begin to desire the heart of God. God says in this passage, there's something very interesting, and it's, it's very easy to miss it. He says in verse 7, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? Provide the poor wanderer. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25. He calls this person the stranger, someone who comes into your country with nothing, uh, someone who comes into your country. Uh, they're a refugee from another place. Jesus says to, to recognize them and look at what he says to acknowledge them. He says, provide them with shelter. Those who are homeless, provide them with shelter. When you see the naked, clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Look at that. He says, consider them as if they are your own flesh and blood. What a paradox. What a paradox. You have this wanderer. You have this stranger. You have someone from a different place. And God says to understand and view them as your own flesh and blood. When you view them as your own flesh and blood, there's no place for racism. There's no place for ethnocentrism. There's, there's no place for superiority. God says that you and I, when we begin to review and understand people from the perspective, because here's, here's what God wants us to do. He wants us to view people differently than everyone else. That we have to begin to view people as a part of the larger human race. That we have to begin to view people as a larger body of people. Where there's interdependence and connectedness. That, that you and I, although there is diversity in the creation of God, but that you and I, are a part of the larger human race. Individuals made in the image of God. If we can begin to see people as flesh and blood, interconnected, commonality, 
it takes us a long way in this journey of doing justice. Now, fasting, fasting is this idea. Fasting is this idea of depriving yourself of something. Amen? Here's what God is saying. If you want to deprive yourselves of something, do it for the sake of the oppressed. Do it for the sake of those who are needy. Do it for the sake of those who are helpless. And don't do it just so that you can use it as a bargaining tool with God. Look at how great I am. I've given to the poor. I've given to the homeless. I've given to people who are in needy. God says, deprive yourselves for the sake of the oppressed, the needy, those who are without. He says, you want to be like God? You, you want to be God like God's nature Listen to this. God's nature is to give himself to people who couldn't pay him back. That's the nature of God. And God says, you want to be like me. You need to see people differently. Not what you can gain from them or get out of the relationship with them, but to see them how I see them. I'm willing to give of myself to those who can't give back to me. You see, what most of us forget is that the world was created for shalom. Shalom. We, we translate that word as peace. We translate that word as peace. In Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see the world created in its interconnectedness and how God had designed all things. And after every creation, every, every declaration of what God created, he said it was good. It was, it was shalom. It was the way that things were intended to be. It was working in coordination. Everything worked, the sun, the sky, the moon, the stars, everything worked in conjunction with the way that God designed it to be. And then Genesis chapter 3 happens in Genesis chapter 3 and shalom is shattered. The fall of humanity and shalom is shattered. And the way that things were supposed to work and the way that things were supposed to be was all messed up. And in Genesis 3, 15 and 16, God begins the plan of putting shalom back in place. And all of history to the coming of Jesus Christ moved towards the direction of God restoring shalom in the world. And at the coming of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, he overcame the forces of the enemy and the destruction of the evil one. He overcame death and the grave and shalom was set in motion. I love the way Cornelius Plantinga, a, a, a respected theologian and the past president of Calvin Theological Seminary, says it. He says that shalom is the webbing together for God, humans, and all creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight. He says we translate the word shalom, peace, but in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness. And delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully are employed all under the arch of God's love. Here's what he says. Shalom is the way things ought to be. See, our world, our world was built for shalom. But it's unraveling. It's unraveling. And behind this biblical idea of justice that Isaiah is talking about is this concept of shalom. 
I love the way Neil Planninger says this. I, I, I love, he gives this image of a fabric and he talks about how, how fabric has all of these weaves, how, how they have all of these uh, pieces, strands of weaves and, and the weaves are interconnected and they overlap one another. And when it's all, it's like a blanket, when it's all um, laid out, when the seamstress is done with the work that they've done and it's all laid out, the, the, the blanket at the end of the day provides warmth, there's strength, and there is great strength and power in that blending of the fabric. It says, God built the world to be a fabric woven together interdependently, and the more interwoven that you and I are, the more beautiful it is, the stronger it is, the more warmth that's found in the fabric. So for you and I to engage in the work of justice, for you and I to do the work of justice, is for us to begin to help the rebuilding of that fabric. For you and I to go into places where the fabric is breaking down, where there are weaker members of society and They're falling through the seams and you and I are interconnecting our lives with theirs. Shalom is being restored. And every day, every day you and I have an opportunity to take the threads of our lives, to wove them in the lives of others, to strengthen the fabric of our city. That there's a verse that's found that's become pretty significant to me and to the ministry of Tabernacle Community Church. It's found in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11. And it's an interesting verse because here's what Proverbs 11 and 10 says. It says, when the righteous people, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When when, when that word there for righteous is this word sadiq, the sadakim. When the sadakim, those who are the righteous ones, that, that word can be replaced with those who do justice. Because the righteous ones, the sadiq, are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of advantaging others. The, the sadiq are those who are willing to deprive themselves. We're talking about fasting. Those who are willing to give up something for the sake and the advantage of others. This is why the city rejoices. The city rejoices because those who are the righteous ones are willing as they prosper, as they are blessed by God, they understand that their blessings that come from God is not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of the city and for the benefit of others when they realize that God has given them prosperity, that prosperity is then given and afforded to those who don't have. They disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others. They look for ways and opportunities to bless Others And look at what it says. It says the city rejoices. There is a great celebration happening in the city because of the Sadakim. Because of those who are doing justice in the name of Christ. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we don't always grasp that. 
we get so caught up in ourselves, in our own individual lives, we, 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 we don't begin to find parts of the society that's unraveling, where the threads are falling apart, and we don't, we don't try to engage in ways that we can begin to reweave shalom, the shalom of God, into our culture. The rest of the city doesn't become envious of our prosperity, but they rejoice because of our prosperity. The text actually pictures this idea. They actually are dancing in the streets because the righteous are prospering. Isn't that a great vision? Isn't that a great scene that when the people of God prosper, the city will rejoice? That those who do justice and and we've often seen the righteous person as the one who's doing our personal piety. But this text is talking about those who do justice. Look at what the text says. Verse 8. It says, when you begin to understand God's heart for people, and you begin to realize that God's expectation is that your relationship with him will impact your relationship with those who are oppressed and poor. When you begin to see people with the eyes of God and to see them as a part of the larger family and community of the human race made in the image of God, and you begin to do justice, here's what the text says. It's almost like a classic if-then situation. Verse 8, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. He will answer your prayers. You will cry for help and he will say, here's my very presence. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the point, pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. Look at what he's saying. He said, when your needs arise, God will provide for you even when there is a desert land all around you. He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never falls. Look at the beauty of what God is saying. He says, when you understand what my heart is for the poor and for the oppressed and for the needy, for the widow and the orphan, when you understand that I am calling my people, that when they, they, they carry out their personal spiritual practices, that it should Show up in how they engage with others when you actually live that way, I will respond. Look at what he says in verse 12. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. I love this language. You will be called repair, repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with the dwellings. I'm sure he's, he's thinking about what's going to happen in uh, in Babylon, as, as Israel will be taken into captivity and they'll return to their land and they'll be the restorers of walls and, and, and those who are rebuilding and restorers of the streets with broken dwellings. I'm sure he's thinking about that, but eschatologically, he's also thinking about the day in Revelation 21 and 5 where Jesus says he's making all things new. And so he's giving us a picture that you and I have been called to join him in the work of making all things new. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 has, has shared with us that he has made us new, that the past, has, the old has passed away, and the new kingdom has come dwelling inside of us. And now you and I get to join him in the work. We've been made new. Now we get to join him in the work of making all things new. 
We'll be rebuilders of walls, restorers, where, where sin brought brokenness and, and, and dismantled the weaving of shalom. You and I get to join God in the work of reweaving sh- the shalom of God back into our society. Testifies, verses 8 through 14, testifies to this idea that when we engage in the work of justice with the heart of God, that our relationship with God will overflow. As we begin to think about this, as we begin to, to cultivate this idea of having the heart of God, We've been challenged as a faith community. This past summer, we launched, as we looked at one of the broken walls in our community, we were challenged to do a work with youth entrepreneurship. So we developed a youth entrepreneur leadership program. And we developed it because we realized that helping people to build businesses is one key way to address the issues of poverty. And so, as a church, we engaged in the work of giving young people a vision for becoming an entrepreneur. People said, that's not the work of the church. Well, when you understand that God is reweaving the culture of shalom, then we've joined him in the work of rebuilding a city. The FBI recently reported on their Facebook page that that payday lenders are charging more than 700% on short-term loans. This is why we have gotten ourselves involved in partnering with others who are addressing the need of payday loans here in our community. Do you know that there are more payday lenders, you know, cash and go kind of places? There are more of those here in Kent County than there are McDonald's and Starbucks combined. And here in in the Kent County community, they're charging people as much as 400% on these small Payday loans. And it's the working class who are being, the working poor who are being taken advantage of. So as a community, we're partnering with other agencies and other organizations to look at how do we create an alternative for these payday lending sources. They're taking advantage of the poor. How do we begin to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of advantaging someone else? So we're looking at launching a credit union, a credit union that will begin to provide some loans to this group of people that nobody wants. Why are we doing this? Because it's the heart of God. And it's the gospel of the kingdom. So people say, well, what about getting people saved? That's important. But here's what we're discovering. That when we engage in a social consciousness and we engage in the work of justice, you see, the the, the church has lost its voice. The church has lost its credibility in the culture. Because for so long, all we've done is declared what we're against instead of showing what we're for. And so, so these, this social consciousness, this justice talk allows us the credibility to speak into a person's life. Jesus, when he came and he commissioned his followers, he came and he healed them first, and then he told them about the kingdom. He met their need, and then he spoke 
the kingdom of God and its power and ability to change his life. So we get involved in reweaving the shalom into society because it's what Jesus did. So I'm going to close here. Maybe. God wants you to delight in him. God wants you to go to your Bible studies. Man, we got so many Bible studies. God wants you to enjoy those opportunities of fellowship. God wants you to live lives to the glory of his name, but he also wants you to act justly with the poor. He wants you to act justly with the marginalized. He wants you to understand that we're a part of a common human family. And we've got to engage not so that God will hear our prayers and so that God will bless us this text argues against that type of religion. It's not the way of Jesus. If you're just doing good things and if you're just getting involved in the area of justice so that God can proclaim how good you are and others can declare how righteous you seem to be, then you've missed the point. And watch out. Because the enemy is slick. You can grab a hold to God's heart and vision for justice, and it begins to seep out of your intimate, personal time with him, and you begin to connect with others, and the enemy will start to blow your head up and and begin to pit you against others in the body of Christ, and he begins to say, look at how you're doing and how these people don't understand the robust nature of the gospel. And he begins to cause pride in your life. But here's the answer to that. The answer to that is the cross of Christ. The answer to that is to always remember the Christ of the cross. It's to always remember the one who died on the cross, the the one who was naked. The Bible says that they gambled off his clothing. He was naked as he hung on the cross. The Bible says he was thirsty. Jesus declared as he hung on the cross that I thirst. The Bible says that he was the one who was a prisoner. He had gone through such an unjust trial. He had been beaten and humiliated and treated uncivilized and ultimately died an unjust death as a prisoner. The thirsty, the hungry, the naked, the prisoner. He says, when you treat the least of these like me, when you Treat the least of these. He identified with those people because on the cross, he became the disadvantaged. He became the oppressed. And the only way that you and I can maintain the proper perspective is to always go back to the cross of Christ. Here's my last thought. Have you ever seen a preview of a movie? You see, you watch previews all the time. Previews, they oftentimes tie together all the best clips of the movie so to draw you in so that you desire to actually see the full film, correct? You and I, are to be previews to the coming kingdom of Christ. 
And so as we engage in this work of shalom, as we begin to push back the darkness in our world, as we begin to weave into places where broken people are falling through the seams, as we begin to push back poverty, as we begin to push back social systems that continue to create injustice for others, as we begin to engage in the work of justice, we'll begin to give the world pictures, previews of the coming kingdom. When healing begins to happen in the lives of people, we'll begin to give people previews of the coming kingdom and they'll so desire to buy a ticket to the full film that you'll have to declare to them, I got some good news for you. You can't buy the ticket. The ticket's been already paid for by Jesus Christ. The gospel of salvation is Jesus Christ coming to earth, identifying with the poor and the oppressed, defeating the power of sin and death so that one day he can establish the absolute shalom of God Back in this world. Today. He invites you. To be a part of that kingdom. The kingdom. That will restore. All things. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for the mighty work of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. That is the gospel. Today, God, our hearts are challenged. Our lives are challenged. Let this moment together, as we worship you, be a moment that our lives are reoriented and changed. That we would begin to live into this vision of being the Sadakim, those willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of bringing an advantage to others for the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.